So here we are, back in our singleness series. And uh, if you were here last week, you know that we launched into this topic. And, um, and if you're new here, if this is your first Sunday with us, you're visiting, uh, one of the things we do is on Sunday mornings, uh, during this time, we kind of pivot from an exposition. You just heard one of those. And we try to address, we try to pick topics that uh, we know as shepherds are uh, just really important in your life. We want to disciple you in these topics. And so we've, we've, Rich and I kind of think through these things, so they're boundless leaders, we pray through them, and then we bring specific topics to you. And then on Thursday nights, in our, in our Bible study time on Thursdays, we do our exposition. So this is the time for equipping, and as you know, we're in this topic on singleness. And I've wanted to teach this series for a while now, um, because for one, almost all of you in here are single, and uh, very, very important uh, to your lives. And, uh, but seriously, that being the case, there are some uh, significant pitfalls in this stage. And so we want to help you guys navigate some of those, but then at the same time, see the blessings in it and learn how to maximize those blessings um, while you're in it. And really, we want you to live at every stage of your life, whether you're single, married, or, or, or whatever it is, for the glory of God and, and know how to do that um, in this stage. So last time, we, we launched off. And we observe that, that lots of times, even in the church, there's some confusion around this topic of singleness. Has that been your experience? Confusion around the topic? Right? So, depending on who you talk to, you might get some different perspectives. Some might th- think that singleness is not very good at all, right? And they would cite Genesis 2, when the Lord Himself said that it was not good that Adam was alone. Well, there you have it, the marching verse for every man in boundless, right? Or they might cite Proverbs 18.22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord, right? So, marriage good, singleness bad. Others, though, might have a different perspective. They might claim singleness is a good thing. And not just a good thing, but the most spiritual thing you could choose. And they might go to 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, point blank, that it is good. Singleness is good. Where he says that he wishes everybody was like him in that way. Where he says he, he, where he encourages singles to remain single. And even tells them he thinks that they would be happier if they did. So, last time we looked at what seems like kind of competing statements in Scripture. And we spent last week trying to reconcile these biblical perspectives. And the answer, we said, to whether singleness is viewed negatively or positively depends on what? Huh? Louder. When. Okay. When. Where you're at in the story, right? The Bible is a story. It's it's a progressive revelation. It's unfolding. And where you're at in that story depends on how the Bible views singleness. Or we could say it like this. It depends on whether or not singleness is good or bad depends on where God is at in the fulfillment of his mission. Remember that from last week? That's key. Whether singleness is good or bad depends on where God is at in the fulfillment of His mission. And we saw that as God's mission developed from the Old Testament to the New, the significance of singleness was transformed. Okay, you remember that? We saw that in the beginning, Genesis, and then throughout the Old Testament, that physical offspring were essential to God's mission. Before the fall, Humans were tasked with taking dominion of this planet on God's behalf to subdue it 
to reign over it in perfect righteousness. It was a grand and glorious task, and Adam could not do it alone. He needed Eve, and he needed kids. Okay? So it wasn't good that he was alone. But we also saw that this perfect reign didn't last long. He and Eve failed their first test, and they brought sin into the world in Genesis 3. But in the midst of this failure, God promised to raise up one of Eve's physical offspring, one of her physical children, one of her own descendants, who would deal the death blow to the snake and reverse the curse. So even after the fall, marriage and childbearing remained very, very important to God's mission, and so singleness then remained a problem, a hindrance to that mission. So fast forward several thousand years, skipping a lot, but to the prophet Isaiah, and he predicted that God would raise up a Messiah, and it would be the faithful descendant, that one promised to Eve, and this child would be obedient unto death, Isaiah says. And he would mysteriously bring about a renewed offspring through his substitutionary sacrifice. We looked in depth at that last week in Isaiah 53. We saw in the next chapter, 54, that barren Israel would give birth to children not her own. They would be fathered by God himself. And they would be faithful. Something Israel had never been. And it's here in Isaiah's prophecy that we see the the transformation taking place. The Messiah would bear spiritual children. He would renew Israel. And that meant that single people like eunuchs, he says in Isaiah 56, eunuchs would have the opportunity to be involved in this phase of the mission. Now, that sounds like really confusing to you right now. Just go back and listen to message number one. Like, if you missed that and you're thinking, what is he talking about? Uh, I just overviewed it real quick, but you're going to need to go back and listen to that, all right, to kind of get the context. But the point here is that the New Testament authors clearly help us see that Jesus of Nazareth is that promised offspring, and through his death, he's been renewing spiritual offspring. Throughout this church age, the gospel is bearing fruit. It's increasing those offspring. And now that means for us in our study that singleness has been transformed, right? It's gone from being something that was undesirable, not good, to now something the Lord can use in a unique way, to bear spiritual offspring through the work of the Messiah. And now that means singleness is transformed. You don't have to be married to bear these kinds of children. Even people like eunuchs who have no ability to physically reproduce can reproduce spiritually, so to speak. And that is a game changer for singleness. And that's where we're at in the mission of God. So all that was last time. We looked at how singleness was transformed by Christ, predicted by Isaiah, and then transformed by Christ. But that raises another question, really a kind of a central question now. Since Christ has come and he's transformed singleness, does that mean we should just all be single? Right? That we should just all be devoted to the mission. Like if we're really devoted to the mission, then we should just not get married and stay single. Is that the most obedient thing that you can do? Well, the short answer is probably not. All right? Probably not. It's a short answer. Some of you, yes, but most of you, no. Now you're probably really confused, right? Like, man, well, that was uh, anticlimactic. Uh, What a buildup. 
You might be thinking, wait a minute, Clay, I thought you said singleness was transformed. You know, why, why shouldn't we all be single then? Well, the bottom line is this, okay? When Christ came, he did not replace the old age with the new age. He didn't replace it. Like, okay, that's gone, here's the new, done. The old age, the one we're currently living in, the old age still exists, but it's as though the new age is breaking into the old. It's kind of right in the midst of it. The old age is starting to pass away, We're going to see that next time, but it's starting to pass away, and it soon will pass away when Christ returns and He completes the work. But for now, it's still here, the old creation and its structures, like marriage. Marriage is good, but it belongs to the old creation. But the new creation is breaking in too, right in the middle of it. And singleness points to the new. We're going to see it's part of the new age that's coming that will characterize the new age. But that new creation is not fully here yet. And in fact, it won't be here until we're raised from the dead fully. So you could say it's as though we live in this overlap of the ages. Okay? A little graph. You got old age, new age. Not like the bad new age. I'm talking about like the new creation, new age. All right? Important caveat. And we live in this overlap of these ages. The new is breaking into the old. And since we live in the overlap, we should expect to see, here it is, both in the church. You tracking with me? We should expect to see both singleness and marriage in the church. Now, what I want to do in the next two sessions is really flesh this out. Okay? First with the teaching of Christ, and then with the teaching of Paul. So Christ today, we want to look at what Jesus teaches in the Gospels on this topic of singleness, and how He helps us navigate living in this overlap, and what we should expect when it comes to singleness in the church. Okay? That's this week. And then next week, next or not next week, actually it'll be two weeks from now, but in session three, we're going to look at the longest treatment on singleness in Scripture. And it comes from what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7. So, you could think of it like Jesus laying the foundation in the Gospels, and then Paul building on it in 1 Corinthians 7. So, that's what, that's what we're going to do over the next two, two sessions. All right. Lesson number two, singleness according to Jesus. And in particular, we're just going to kind of synthesize some of this stuff into really six principles on singleness from, from Christ. Now, I say six. You guys know me. You're thinking, oh, no. Going to be long. Uh, it's only two passages, okay? So, I'm sparing you. Two passages, but six principles we're going to glean from those passages. First one we're going to look at is from Luke chapter 20. So, you can go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 20. And while you're turning there, let me go ahead and set it up for you. Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem. He's been journeying to Jerusalem all the way through this, this back portion of Luke. He finally gets there. He knows he's coming to die, and tensions are high. I mean, religious leaders, they hate him at this point. They're ready to kill him. They're looking for any excuse to pounce on him. They're throwing everything they've got at him, trying to trap him. And this is where our passage picks up in Luke chapter 20, verse 27. It says, There came to him some of the Sadducees. Okay, Luke 20. Wait till I hear the pages stop rustling. Luke 20, verse 27. You there? 
Okay. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher. Sorry. <laughs> Blow everybody's ears out there. Teacher. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second, the third took her, and likewise all the seven left no, and left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. So, you know, well, morbid, morbid, uh, morbid setup here. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. So, here's this group of Jewish religious leaders They're called the Sadducees, who themselves don't believe in the resurrection, and they're trying to stump Jesus with a gotcha question. They're trying to disprove the teaching of the resurrection of the dead. And so they're setting up this sort of hypothetical scenario. Here's a woman that's had multiple husbands, and so if she's resurrected along with all seven of them, things start breaking down, they would say, these Sadducees. How will she know who to be with in the resurrection? Whose wife will she be? Obviously, they think there can't be a resurrection like this because this, this is illogical. Right? Like, there's, there's no way this could, this could work. The Lord is not, he doesn't approve of polygamy and, and all these things. So, but Jesus, <laughs> he knows the Sadducees don't understand a fundamental difference between the two ages, right? Between this age and what it's like and the next age and what it's like. The first correction Jesus offers them, and where we're just going to camp out, is that that marriage itself is not eternal. It's only part of this age. And the age that's coming will be different. Look in verse 34. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, meaning the resurrection, to the resurrection from the dead, they, listen to this, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and sons of God, and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So, the first thing Jesus tells this group of Sadducees is that marriage has a timestamp. Right? Marriage is a timestamp. It belongs to this age, and this age then refers to the age that we're currently in, or as I've been calling it, the old age. The first age this first creation. And here, Jesus says very clearly that marriage belongs to that, this current age. And it's the age in which we live. And that implies then, when it comes to singleness, that singleness is not the norm now. And that's our first principle. Singleness is not the norm in the old age. And that old age is the age we currently live in. Marriage is the norm in the old age that we currently live in. Look back in 34. He said, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. So that's our first orienting principle. First and fundamentally, marriage is created by God, and it's part of this current age in which we live. And so we should expect that even in the church, the majority of people will seek to live within the institution of marriage. And what this means is, with with all this talk of the new creation and Christ being raised from the dead and, and being useful for mission as a single... This means that you shouldn't feel weird or unspiritual for wanting to be married. You tracking? 
The Lord's created most within this body to have pure longings for companionship and for sexual intimacy. And that's a normal thing, and that's a good thing, because we're still in this age. And for those folks, we're going to learn next time that it's not good to keep trying to suppress that, to keep trying to live a single life thinking it's more spiritual when you have an opportunity to get married. When those longings for intimacy keep tripping you up, it would be better to be proactive and get married. But we'll talk about more on that later, okay? It's like, ah, oh, proactive on getting married. Okay, segue to the dating series, you know. Okay, more later. Just for now, just pointing this out. Singleness is not the norm now. But that's not all Jesus says in this passage. He helps us see that the age that's coming, the new age, the age of resurrection is not like the current age. Its sons, he says, neither marry nor are given in marriage. What's his point? Well, what will marriage give way to in the new creation? And that is singleness. So we could say that singleness will be the the only norm later, meaning in the new creation. Singleness will be the only norm later. So if it's not the norm now, it will be the norm and the only one Later, he says, those who are considered worthy, verse 35, to attain to that age, into the age of the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to or they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So in the age to come, what Jesus is saying is that singleness will be true of us all. None of us will marry or be given in marriage. Now, this sounds a little odd, right? Especially to the married people in the room. Like, well, what are we going to be, you know, in the, in the new creation? It feels like a, bit, a little bit of a downgrade, if we're being honest, right? Like, like no, no marriage, right? Like in the new creation? <laughs> My wife and I have joked about this before at different points. Like, but it raises a, an important question. Why won't we marry in the new creation, in the eternal state? Because Jesus says we can't die anymore. Thinking, well, okay, like how does that how does that relate? Well, think about the logic. That's interesting. You follow what he's saying? No marriage in the resurrection. Why? For because you can't die anymore. That implies then that, that marriage is part of this old age because it perpetuates the human race. Not the only purpose of marriage. Obviously, companionship in marriage is very important, but the procreation side of marriage is also equally important. And he says there won't be marriage because you're not going to die anymore. There's not going to be a need to perpetuate the human race. Once the threat of death is gone in the resurrection, it's not needed anymore. More offspring isn't necessary because we're not going to die. And so marriage, Jesus says, isn't necessary. Now it's, you know, if it felt like a downgrade then, now it's really feeling like a downgrade, right? Like in our relationships, like, whoa, man, what? If the most intimate of human relationships, i.e. marriage, that won't be around in the eternal state, how is that supposed to be better, right? But notice he didn't say anything about the intimacy of our relationships downgrade, right? We won't need marriage because marriage facilitates physical children. In the age to come, you won't die anymore. 
He's simply talking about the institution of marriage becoming obsolete, not our relationships. In fact, based on everything we know about the Lord and the depth of His relationship with us and how He created us to be interdependent, we can only expect an enhancement in our current relationships when we are resurrected. Does that make sense? It's not a downgrade. And that's applied even in our marriage relationships. I will know my wife far better then than I do now. Far more intimately then than I do now. And that's a wild thought. Super encouraging. And I think when we get there, we're going we're to laugh so hard at ourselves for thinking that it was any kind of downgrade at all. Like, simply just because just, the Lord does away with marriage. And we're like, ah, you know, when what we inherit is profoundly better. In fact, it's, he will replace it with a depth much more profound, with a joy much more pure than we could ever find here, even in the best of our human relationships. In fact, than we could, than we could ever imagine. He's going to take the best of our human relationships, purify them, and enhance them exponentially in the eternal state. Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 2.9 that we cannot imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't, even, we can't even imagine it, right? Like, we kind of can. But he, Paul says, no, what's coming is so much better. And that means it will transcend whatever we can imagine. And that has to apply to our human relationships, even our most intimate ones. So if you're married, don't think you're going to lose anything with your spouse in the eternal state. Think of it as actually gaining something. Gaining future intimacy with them and with the rest of God's people. And what this principle teaches us, and why it's so helpful, why I want to spend some time on it this morning, is that marriage itself is not ultimate. It's not ultimate. It has a time stamp. It's not even our highest joy when we compare it with the depth of relationships in the eternal state. Relationship with Christ and the relationship with His people. So if you're single now and you happen to never marry, and you feel the ache of loneliness, and it seems almost unbearable at times, you can know for certain that that loneliness will be swallowed up completely and forever in the resurrection, and what is coming will far transcend anything you could have had here. Not only will you experience perfect communion with Christ, who already knows you (laughs) in the most profound way, but you will also experience communion with God's people too, in the most intimate and profound ways. And even now, in the church, as that new age is breaking in, Christ is beginning to transform our relationships. And you know what I'm talking about, right? You've got a good Christian friend right here in the church. Many of you are on the front end of your lives and, and, and your and you're front end of your friendships, but let me just testify that those Christian brothers or sisters that the Lord causes to stick by you over the years, what a treasure they will become. It's like a little bit of heaven on earth. It takes work because we're not perfected yet. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got to repent, keep short accounts, all those things. But man, a friendship built by the Lord is something otherworldly. It's going to transcend into the next age. And that, even that, as good as it is, is just a foretaste of what's coming. So regardless whether you're married in this room or whether you're single, our best days relationally are yet to come in that transformed single state. 
And that's because according to Jesus, singleness and not marriage will be the reality in that eternal state. So, Luke 20, we learn some key principles about singleness from Christ. But there's another area in the Gospels, another paragraph of Christ's teaching that illuminates more to us about this single state, and it's in Matthew 19. You can go ahead and turn there. Matthew 19, and we'll take up the rest of our principles from, from this text. Matthew 19, beginning of verse 11, but this passage is similar to the last one we just looked at. Because it's coming from another hostile religious group, and this group's trying to trap Jesus with another marriage question, um, and just kind of reveals their misunderstandings. Okay? This time, though, it's the Pharisees, and their question had to do with the lawfulness of divorce, really for any reason. They were trying to, trying to see what Jesus would say when they were presenting him with this concept of you know, divorce for any reason. How would he answer this? You see, what the, the Pharisees had done was they had taken something that Moses had allowed in Deuteronomy, a certificate of divorce, and they had created all kinds of loopholes for them to divorce their wives. And they totally ran over God's original intent that marriage be permanent unless the covenant was violated by sexual immorality, unless the covenant was broken. So Jesus doubles down on the Pharisees here, and he tells them that they are actually in sin. They're the adulterers if they are divorcing their wives for any other reason than sexual immorality. So definitely the minority position, even among the disciples, because even his own disciples think Jesus is going a little overboard here. Rarely ever did a woman in that culture commit sexual immorality. I mean, it happened, but it was rare. So in their minds... Well, if what Jesus is saying is true, then there's like no escape hatch, right? Like, I can't, I can't get out of this thing if we get married. Once you're married, you're stuck. There's no way out if Jesus is, what Jesus is saying is true, and that can't be the case. And so what they say in verse 10 is they give kind of a, an extreme response. Look in chapter 19, verse 10. The disciples said to him, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry what are they saying? Well, if we can only divorce based on sexual immorality and anything other than that makes us an adul- adulterer, then it's better not to even risk that, not to even get married in the in period, right? But what's funny about this passage is that what Jesus goes on to say is he kind of assents to their, their statement, at least in part. They're expecting him to say, like, well, I kind of back off the extreme position he just gave, but in, instead he presses into what they what they just said about it being better not to get married. Look at what he says in verse 11. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So what's he saying here? He says, is it better not to get married? Well, he's essentially saying, yeah, for some. It's better to voluntarily not marry, but not everyone can receive this. That's the major caveat Jesus gives. So that brings in, that would have shocked them, right? That would have shocked these disciples. So that brings us to our third principle about singleness from Christ, and that is singleness is not for everyone. Singleness is not the right choice for 
everybody. Not everybody can receive the saying. So what's he talking about here? What is the saying that people can't receive? Just pointing forward to what Jesus is about to say? Or is this kind of referring backwards to what was just said? Well, I think it's going backwards. When Jesus says not everybody can receive this saying, he's like basically what they just said. What the disciples just said when they said it's better not to marry. Jesus says not everybody can receive that. And again, this is a helpful caveat to those who would try to make singleness out to be the superior Christian state and kind of impose that on everybody. Jesus would disagree. Some Christians are unable to receive this, meaning it would be unwise for them to try to remain single when it was in their power to get married. But that raises another question, right? So if not everyone can receive this saying, who can? Well, Jesus says the only people who can receive it are those to whom it is given, verse 11. What does that mean? Well, it's a little cryptic here. Paul's going to make this a lot more clear in in 1 Corinthians 7, but it's language that has to do with a gift, something given by God. So I think it's not a stretch to say here something similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that singleness is a gift from God. It's for those who can receive it. Now this statement, what Jesus says to those who can receive it, is kind of the converse of the last one. This statement implies that while singleness isn't for everybody in the church, it is for some, right? It helps the other demographic that says that marriage is for everybody. That means as a church, we've got to weave this into our thinking about the body. Meaning it's not weird if someone chooses not to get married if they're making the choice for the right reasons, if they're able to receive what Jesus, is, what Jesus is saying here, that it's better not to get married. So as a church, we've got to have a category for people who are choosing to remain single for the sake of the mission. We've got to come alongside them and help them and love them, equip them. And we can't just think of unmarried people as like half human. You know what I'm talking about? We're not fully developed. We're sort of eternally under-sanctified because they don't have a spouse or kids to care for. Like, well, you're really going to grow when you get married, have kids. We make those kind of statements all the time. Will you grow if you get married and have kids? Yes, you will. Will that be a sanctifying force in your life? Yes. But here's a thought. Do you realize there are actually other ways that God can sanctify someone besides marriage and family? Yeah. Is his arm too short? To sanctify Paul, who was single? It's not. Apparently, single folks can be can grow just fine without marriage, and that's according to God's will because God is the one giving them singleness as a gift in the first place. Right? And that's helpful for all of us married folks. A nice pause, a nice caveat. But how can we tell who has this gift? Well, Jesus helps us in verse 12, and he elaborates on a very specific kind of single person, the eunuch. We've seen this guy before, right, in Isaiah. But if you don't know what a eunuch is, he's someone that's been castrated, which means he's unable to produce children, which means no wife or kids. He was looked down on in society, forbidden to attend temple worship, And almost always, they were castrated for a purpose, and that was to serve in the king's court. So what, what, seems weird, like why, why, why that? 
Well, since they had no hope of a family or children, their lives were literally all consumed with the success of the king and the kingdom. They were some of the most loyal servants the king had. The eunuch had no earthly legacy except to pour himself out in service to the king. No kids, no grandkids. His name would literally be cut off. And so the only legacy he could leave was the legacy of the kingship. And that meant the king could often trust his eunuchs in ways he couldn't with other political officials. The other officials often were known to have intrigue, political intrigue, and were cunning and trying to, you know, just fall into nepotism and trying to, you know, get their, get their kids a step up. So not, not with the eunuch. They're a very vivid example of sort of a singular focus on service to the king and the kingdom. And that would have been very clear in this culture. But like we've seen, this is also, he cho- Jesus chooses this eunuch, not accidentally. Because you remember, back to, to last week, Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 56 that even eunuchs would be made useful to the Messiah's mission, to the mission of the Messianic king, when this new kind of offspring would be produced. So Jesus uses this specific example of a single person, the eunuch, because it made his point in a very vivid way but also in a way that evoked the prophetic predictions of Isaiah. Now, with all that background in place, let's get back to that question I just said. Is how do we know who's able to receive this gift of singleness? Well, I think we get some clarity in the, the kinds of eunuchs he mentions and kind of how they got there. The first two are involuntary eunuchs, we might say, meaning they did not choose this life for themselves. But who is in control, even of these things, as horrific as they might sound? God is in control. God chose it for them in His providence. And so we could say the gift is, or those that can receive it, is made clear by His providence. Some eunuchs, Jesus says, were born that way, and others, probably slaves, got castrated by men. The implication is kind of (laughs) against their will. Not a good scenario. Some were born with physical deformities, Others were were sort of castrated against their will. But the common denominator is they did not choose this life for themselves. It is involuntary. And yet, they must be able to receive it, at least in some sense, because it's clear by God's providence that He chose it for them. Right? And even though we don't have eunuchs in our culture, we do have birth defects. We have handicaps. Sometimes, depending on how severe they are, it may render marriage and family impossible. And other times, there just may not be any available singles to date or get married to for whatever reason. Now, in the latter case, it doesn't mean you're destined to a life of singleness like the, like the eunuch. It's a very different scenario. Um, your, your scenario can change. The Lord is able to provide this in His time. But what it does mean is that if the Lord makes clear in His providence that marriage and family isn't in your future, then you can trust Him with that choice. In this case, it may feel more like a cross to bear than a gift, and it likely is. But God will help you. He will use it to teach you. And in the end, in the resurrection, like we saw, you won't regret the path the Lord took you to get you to His eternal kingdom and experience the depth of relationships there. So, my only point here, and we can flesh this out later, but sometimes God makes these things clear by His undeniable providence like in the first two eunuch examples. There's no hope for them to get married or no hope for them to have children, physically unable. 
But there's another category, and I think this is really where his point is. There's another category, another way that this gift is made clear, and it's made clear by your voluntary choice. He says there's another category of eunuch that in the, toward the middle of verse 12 that have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the language probably shocks you, and you don't even, we don't even have eunuchs in this culture, right? Like, made themselves eunuchs. Uh, and this definitely shocked Jesus' disciples. Like, nobody does this. He describes eunuchs who have voluntarily chosen this life for themselves and who have made themselves eunuchs. Now, it becomes obvious here that Jesus is using this image as a metaphor. Okay? Origin. Metaphor. Sorry, some of you didn't get that church history reference, but go back and look it up. It's kind of grotesque, but he did not take this metaphorically and uh, suffered greatly for it. All right? Anyway, it's not in my notes. Back to the notes. (laughs) Quickly. Jesus is using this image as a metaphor. Because first, Jesus would not condone self-mutilation. Anytime he talks in those terms, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, it's always in hyperbole, and it's to make a point. It's a figure of speech. And the same is true here. He's not calling us literally to choose castration. But there's another reason we're not to take this literally, and it involves its purpose. Notice that it's for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Not this, not any earthly kingdom right now. It's for the sake of God's spiritual kingdom, not a human kingdom king on this earth. It's a spiritual kind of eunuch, one that's willing to forego marriage and family for the sake of more devotion to God's kingdom. Right, but more on that in just a second. But here, don't miss the point. The gift is manifested in the willing desire of someone to live this kind of single life. Does that make sense? It's manifested in this willingness to do this kind of life. It's a, it's a kind of life that's appealing to you for the sake of more gospel fruit. If your desires for physical intimacy aren't really there, and that you're longing to make disciples in these kinds of unique ways, then perhaps you should consider this high calling. But the point is, no one's having to twist your arm to do it. It's something that you're compelled by, something you want, something you would like to give up for the sake of gospel ministry. And again, we're going to get to that more next week. But here the image is clear. The spiritual eunuch is more singularly devoted to the flourishing of the kingdom. He or she doesn't have any competing loyalties. And that brings us to our fifth principle from Christ's teaching, which is singleness is for more kingdom devotion. Very clearly here spelled out in this text. Singleness is for the purpose of more kingdom devotion. Being more singularly focused on making disciples. And that's not to, not to denigrate the role of marriage and family. You can make disciples with marriage and family. You, you evangelize your kids. You invest in your wife. Your wife invests in her husband. Certainly those things are happening, but there is a reality that in marriage and family you are more tied down. But the point here is that singleness, this choice to stay single, is not a choice that's made out of fear or selfishness. Right? Like, I don't have any responsibilities. Things that weigh me down. Stop me from doing what I want to do. I don't have to, I don't want to have to work hard and provide for kids. 
I want to be able to travel. I want to be able to play my video games. Don't do that, all right? That's not, the, that's not the motive. The single life is chosen so that you can be more exclusively focused on service to the king. doesn't mean you have to be paid in ministry, although that often happens. You can totally work your own job. It's just you don't have kids to raise and care for, or a husband to serve, or a wife to provide for. You're more mobile. You're less tied down. You need less money. You can take greater risks. You can stay out longer in some cases or get into tougher areas in the world. The purpose of staying single is not to gratify yourself then, but it's to serve the Lord in this sort of singular devotion. More on that again next week when we look at, or next time when we look at Paul. All right, finally, number six, last principle here from Christ is that singleness should be embraced by those who desire it. Look where this passage ends. This passage ends with, with sort of an exhortation here. Verse 12, the end of verse 12, let the one who is able to receive it, receive it. What's his point? He's saying singleness, if you're able to receive this, if this is what you want, you don't need to be embarrassed by it, receive it. Because it may be that Christ is calling you out for something in particular. It means you shouldn't feel embarrassed or sort of second, second rate if you're thinking about this kind of Life. It is a life of singular devotion to the king, and you should embrace it if this is something that is appealing to you. Might be for a season of time, might be indefinitely. And this reinforces the goodness of the single state for the sake of the kingdom. Now, we're going to keep looking at this next time. Uh, we're going to end here and really flesh out a lot of these same principles. You're going to see them resurface again in 1 Corinthians 7, but with a lot more detail and application. So we're going to look, continue kind of this, this theme of looking at, okay, what does the Bible teach on singleness? 1 Corinthians 7, and then we'll pull up after we deal with 1 Corinthians 7, and we'll start looking at a lot more practical applications, some of the pitfalls of the single life, whether you're gifted for it or not, and ways you can maximize it, again, whether you're gifted for it or not, and maybe even some, some ways you can maximize the single life if you think you are gifted um, in this particular area. All right, but next Sunday, in here, we're going to still be meeting, but we're going to take a break from this series. Um, Isaac Harkness is coming, and he's going to fill in for me, because I've got a sermon that's coming up on the Millennial, uh, Millennial Kingdom series that night, which is going to be a big one for me. I've got to do a lot of work on that uh, still. Um, a lot of heavy lifting in the research side, and we're going to be at a conference all week, so uh, this next week. So I'm going to be trying to, to, to do those things. So Isaac's graciously, I think it's Isaac, right? So we decided. I don't want to be like saying this, and then it's not. He left, so we'll find out. Oh, the thumbs up, okay. JoJo was slated, but JoJo had knee surgery. So uh, JoJo subbed, subbed that out. Good to see you back there, bro. Feeling all right? Okay, great. So he subbed Isaac out. Isaac's taking the call, and uh, I'm very, very grateful for that. You guys are going to be served well by that brother. Uh, love him dearly and excited to hear what he's going to bring to you guys. And then on Thursday, we're going to be coming back in from the conference. So um, Bailey Farrell is going to be teaching on Thursday night. So again, going to be well served by him. Uh, come out for that. We're going to all try to, try to make it. It depends on our flight and all those kinds of things, but we'll see, see what we can do. But yeah, Bailey on Thursday and, and looking forward to those things. But then the, the week following in here, we'll, we'll jump back into the singleness series and, and keep it going. All right?
this little sneak peek on what's coming. Well, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we are thankful for how you shepherd us so well through your word, and we're thankful for these principles that we've mined out from the teaching of Jesus on this, this topic of singleness and just much confusion sometimes in our minds around this. And thank you for just putting the pieces in place for us to help us um, to see truth and to find balance, to, to not fall into, into ditches on one side or the other. And we pray that you would continue to give us clarity um, as we study this and help us uh, just learn what this single state involves and how to maximize it for your glory. Uh, thank you for the students and, and those working in our college and career ministry. Pray that you bless them today as, as they continue to fellowship and they go to lunch and um, just produce your fruit uh, as they use their gifts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.